invite you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of John in the New Testament, chapter 3. It's page 887 in the Bibles there in the pews. As we look today at a conversation that Jesus had with uh, a man named Nicodemus. I picked John chapter 2 last week on the water into wine, the first public sign that Jesus performed. And now today, John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, and then next week, the woman at the well, as those three encounters that Jesus had with people leading up to our missions conference. And I've got to be honest with you, I'm also teaching these lessons to the international students at First Presbyterian Day School. So I'm, I'm learning a lot in communicating that different culturally to people who have, until this week, had never heard John 3.16. So it is extremely invigorating, and it gives me a different angle on things, but that's part of, if you say, Chip, why are you preaching John 2, 3, and 4 uh, during February? That, that's why. Um, John begins his gospel, before I read the passage, I want to remind you that he tells us his purpose in writing. Uh, toward the end of the book, he says, these are written, these things, these things he's chosen to write, these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in him. John is out to see people come to faith in Christ. That is his agenda. That is his purpose in writing. He is hoping that by the time a person finished hearing this gospel or reading this gospel, that that person would move to faith in Christ from a point previously of unbelief. And he makes no bones about that. So as we come to each story like this one, that is a purpose. John is writing with that agenda. He's writing to unbelievers, hoping that they will come to believe. Now we meet a man named Nicodemus. Let me read the closing two verses of chapter 2 because they set, set up what is going to happen. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That ends the the reading of God's holy word. Let me lead us in prayer. Oh God, we, we pray as we see these words, hear these words of Jesus, that none of us on our own, in our own flesh can be born again of our own choosing, but it's a work of your spirit. We pray you'd open our eyes toward that. Bring your work in Jesus' name. Amen. John was the only one of the disciples who was not martyred for his faith. There were failed attempts to execute him, He was exiled to the island of Patmos, and there on that island he received a revelation, a vision that God gave to him, which inspired the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. He eventually left Patmos, and he continued preaching in Asia until he died at a very old age. Here in this passage, we have an encounter with a man that follows on the heels of a statement made about Jesus. And that is that people were following Jesus now because he performed signs, they had seen that, and yet he is not swayed by that. And it says that Jesus knew what was in the heart of man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew our hearts, he knew the motivation. Chapters and verses were added to the Bible hundreds of years after it was originally written. So there is a continuation here. He himself knew what was in man. Now verse 1, now there was a man from the Pharisees. So it's John is writing to make a point that here's an example. That Jesus knew this man's heart. It would read smoother to have said, now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. So it's a continuation of that thought from the end of chapter 2 that Jesus knew the hearts of people, and he knows Nicodemus' heart. This man is a Pharisee. You know about Pharisees. The word means to be separated. They were the separatists. They were the religious men of the day. There were never more than 6,000 Pharisees in the land of Palestine at any one time. Their main fault was they externalized religious devotion to God. They believed that if you lived by an outward code of what to do and what not to do, then that would please God. They focused on external behavior. And verse 1 says he was a ruler of the Jews. So this narrows it down from the 6,000 Pharisees probably to the 70 that were on the Sanhedrin. We would call that today our Supreme Court in their religious world. Now he was one of them. So they had religious jurisdiction over every Jew in the world. He was a heavy hitter, to use our term. 
He was a man of high authority in the religious leadership of Israel. But the most impressive detail about Nicodemus comes in verse 10, where Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. Some Bible scholars believe Nicodemus perhaps was the voice of the Jews at that time, that he was the the designated spokesman for the rabbinic teaching. Regardless whether that was actually the case, he was a widely recognized and prominent teacher of the scriptures in Israel. He was a skilled theologian, or at least he was supposed to be. And he comes to Jesus at night. We don't know exactly why. It's easy to speculate to say maybe he was would have been embarrassed to be seen talking to Jesus. Maybe he was too busy in the daytime. Maybe he just needed a private moment and their crowds were around in the daytime with Jesus. We don't know, but he comes. And he begins with a remark that sounds like a compliment on the surface. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that we've seen you perform unless God is with him. It appears respectful, it appears courteous, but if you dig a little deeper, it probably was not that. Nicodemus and his Pharisee kin had seen, they had watched, they had heard of these signs, these miracles that Jesus had performed. They knew that in the Old Testament times, one of the main functions of a miracle was to authenticate a prophet from God. God attested that these messengers, these prophets, these spokesmen, Uh, that he attested to them that they were speaking his word by accompanying their word with miracles which they performed. And Nicodemus is admitting, no one can do the things that you are doing unless God is with him. He's not saying that he believes Jesus is the Messiah. He's not even saying that he thinks he's God. In fact, it could be a condescending remark, much like you're obviously from God. And we've recognized that. And we, we can help you. We can open some doors for you. You need an agent. You need a handler. And we can make it happen. We've got the connections to see that you accomplish what you want to accomplish. We don't know. We don't know the the tone of his voice, but we do know Jesus cuts him off. He cuts him off, goes right to the heart, and says, to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. It's as though Jesus doesn't even hear what he's saying. Why? because he knew the heart of Nicodemus, like he knows your heart and my heart and all hearts. And he says to him, you must be born from above. For a person, for one to see the kingdom of God, for one to have eternal life, you must be born from above. So he says, here's an absolute truth, Nicodemus. Unless you or anyone is born again, you cannot sing the kingdom of God. Now when he says, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He's not saying I'm going to stop you from seeing the kingdom of God. He's saying you are not able. If you have a cabinet in your house and you've got chemicals or some things that no human should drink that harm them, you tell your child, look, you cannot, you cannot open the door to that cabinet. That is a prohibition. They have the ability to open the cabinet. You're saying you cannot open it. But if you put a padlock on it, And then you say, you cannot open that cabinet. Now it's not only a prohibition, you've made it an inability. They are not able to open the cabinet. When Jesus says you're not able to see the kingdom of God unless you are born again, he's not saying I'm going to keep you from it. He's saying you're not able. You're not able to see the kingdom of God. And that is why Nicodemus in verse 4 responds back, and he's flabbergasted. He said, 
How can that be? How can, how can, uh, how can a person be born uh, when, when they're older? You can't reenter your mother's womb. Uh, maybe he was sarcastic. Maybe he was, uh, uh, to a degree, even mocking what was Jesus was saying. But Jesus, whether it was an insult or not, he doesn't respond to it that way. He doesn't back down. And in verse 5, he says, More than that, truly I say to you, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does he mean, water and the Spirit? I've perused many commentaries about this this week. And some believe that water here refers to physical birth, just as there's water that accompanies physical birth to a in a way to speak, so that one has to be born physically before they can be born spiritually. That could be the case. Some think that water here refers to the sacrament of baptism in some respect, that one must be baptized physically and spiritually in order to go to heaven. But I've learned long ago that when I'm not sure and I need light and I'm walking in darkness, I use R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul says that he believes this, and this is what makes sense to me, that Jesus is clearly referring to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36, where it says this. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. That's one of the reasons we sprinkle in baptism. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So there through the prophet Ezekiel, centuries before, that Nicodemus should know, being the Old Testament scholar, he's talking about the new birth. God says, I will take out this heart of stone and I'll put in a real heart, a heart of flesh, of being born again, of being changed, of being converted, of being made new. And so Jesus rebukes Nicodemus right here and says, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? So how do we enter into a relationship with God now and have assurance of going to heaven now when we die? Well, we must be born of the Holy Spirit. We must be given life. The biblical term is regeneration. We must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And I must mentioned as I asked some students the other day, why would Jesus say we must be born again? Why does someone need to be regenerated? And after two minutes of blank stares, I said it goes back to Genesis. What happened in the garden? They died. And I said we start off, according to Ephesians, we start off spiritually dead where Adam and Eve ended up when they violated God's law, when they broke his prohibition, he said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. They died spiritually. Ephesians says we are born that way. Therefore, we must be born again. We must be given new life. The flesh does not produce redemption. No one is born, born again. No one is born with faith in Christ. No one is born with new life. Now, that's bad news for some and good news for others. It's bad news for those like the Jewish people of Jesus' day who thought that by being Jewish, just by their inheritance, therefore they had God's favor. They thought that because they were Jews, descendants of Abraham, that they would go to heaven. And the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament teachers go to a lot of extent and a lot of energy to show them that's not the case. Likewise, you may have been born 
with believing parents, raised in what we call a Christian home, brought up in a church, but none of those things make you right with God in and of themselves. All that your natural birth has given you, Jesus is saying, is flesh. And flesh of that sort is powerless to enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of spirit is spirit. So unless you are born of the spirit of the living God, whatever you do in your flesh will avail you nothing toward entering the kingdom of God. Now you've got to remember, Jesus is speaking these words into the face of a man whose whole being oozed with the belief that we can do things to please God. He thought, he would have thought, that I am a religious man and I am a good man and God likes me. And Jesus in stark contrast is saying you must be born of the Holy Spirit to have a relationship with God to go to heaven. And so Jesus' words to Nicodemus like they are probably to many of us naturally they're opposed to what we think. Our nature wants to see ourselves as able, incapable, and I can earn God's favor. I can work, I can achieve, I can, I can do good things, worthy things. Whatever your code may be, giving money, being faithful to your, in your marriage, uh, being a church member, or, or even teaching Sunday school, or whatever, whatever. And we're tempted to think, <coughs> God must be impressed. Well, he's not. Not if that's all we're relying on. As good as those things are and as necessary as those things are, those are irrelevant to this issue of being born again. So do you see your need of a new birth if you've not experienced that already? Like Nicodemus, Jesus is trying to persuade him. Now by verse 7 and Nicodemus' response, how can these things be? He's obviously perplexed at this point. Probably even more so as Jesus goes on to say that not only is regeneration necessary, then he's going to add it's unpredictable. Maybe they're standing there and the wind blew. Maybe some leaves or or whatever the plants around them might have motioned in the wind. Who knows? But Jesus makes a point. He says you feel the wind, but you don't see where it comes from. and You don't see where its final destination will be. You have no control over that. He's comparing wind to the Spirit of God. We don't know its origins. Given enough power with wind, it can tear down buildings made of steel and brick. Put enough wind over water, it creates whirlpools. It cannot be controlled. And the Spirit of God is like that. We only know the result. In other words, Nicodemus, listen, Nicodemus, in other words, there is a mysterious, unseen work of God that goes on in the hearts of men and women. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you you know, why is it? Why did God choose you? That's what Isaac Watts was saying in that hymn we sang right before. Uh, Why was I made to hear your voice uh, when others were not? Uh, Why is it that the Spirit of God will move here uh, and, and affect somebody's heart over there and, and five people sitting around them and it, it's in one ear and out the other. Uh, why is it that um, 10 years ago there were roughly worldwide 79,000 people a day professing faith in Christ and today it's almost 200,000 people a day worldwide professing faith in Christ. We have no control over that. We can pray, we can seek that, but the Holy Spirit moves and says, you are mine. I've told you several times that as a pastor, one of the great privileges I have, like many of the elders, is hearing testimonies of people 
as they come to join the church. Just how did God bring you to himself? And and no two are exactly the same. No circumstances. Some were in pain. Some were in celebration. Some had gone through hard times. Some were gone through great times. Some were brought up in Christian families and knew the gospel from the time they were young. Others from no Christian background. I remember one guy talking to us, and he was converted. It's kind of scary. Reading the Bible as he drove on I-16 to Statesboro by himself. He would drive back and forth to college, and he opened his Bible. He said, I would drive, and I would glance over, and I'd read, and I'd think about what I was reading. Nobody was really talking to him. He had a Christian friend here in Macon that had, their example had had an impact on him, but, but God just was bringing this guy through terrible, hard times that he had, many he had brought on himself. Uh, it brought him to faith in Christ. And so Nicodemus asked, how can these things be? In verse 9. And Jesus points Nicodemus, as he does to us, to a threefold problem. In verse 10, he says it's because people don't understand. In verse 11, or failure to receive. Or verse 12, failure to believe. If you're not a believer here this morning, it's probably for one or all of those reasons. Either you don't understand the message of the gospel about Christ, or you refuse to receive it, or you don't believe it. To enter the kingdom of heaven, a person must be changed by God's Spirit, and our nature must be changed. But you have no control over that as to bringing it about. And if we respond to the gospel and believe, say, well, I believe, that's a result of it having, that's a result of being born again. Richard Phillips, remember he preached back here in the fall, pastors in Greenville, South Carolina, and he preached at a theological institute. I, I heard him say, he walked down, he was going to teach, or he was talking about Nicodemus, and he walked down to their uh, toddler nursery, a toddler and older, and he asked how many kids, he said, how many of you were born? And there's a group of kids, and only some of them raised their hands. <laughs> how many of you have been born? And then he realized some of them had been taught by their parents about the stork or something, so he said, I wasn't going there. But he said, finally, they did all raise their hands when I said, how many have been born? Well, he was making the point, what control did you have? What decision did you make about being born? Uh, Our tendency is to flee from God, and God's Spirit awakens us and regenerates us, and now we have a desire for God, and things look different, and things change. Sinclair Ferguson told his pastor over in South Carolina for so many years, said of a man that came to their church, he was not converted. After about a week, two weeks, he, he, he was born again. He came to faith in Christ and he said, boy, this church has changed a lot in six weeks. Said the songs mean more, the worship communicates, and the preacher suddenly is able to talk now, and I can understand him. What had changed? He had changed. He had been born from above. And now Jesus, to help Nicodemus, gives him another illustration. And it's about the bronze serpent in the wilderness. And perhaps Jesus says to Nicodemus, remember what happened with Moses and those fiery serpents in the wilderness? Nicodemus could have recited the story. He could have said, of course I remember. God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. Then God supernaturally provided for their physical needs with manna from heaven and water from this rock. But as their journey continued, they began to complain and to rebel and to murmur and to speak against Moses and against God. And so God sends a plague. He had sent plagues before, but against Pharaoh and against Egypt. Now God sends a plague against his own 
people. And the plague was this infestation of poisonous snakes. And many of the people were bitten, and many people died. And in Numbers 21, it tells us the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord and that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed to the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So as people, as odd as it may seem, so here you have a snake bite on your arm or perhaps on your foot, on your leg, and you are going to die most likely from the venom of this snake. And now you're given instruction. If you're bitten, look. And Moses has got this pole and he's got this bronze replica of one of the snakes itself. And all you had to do was look, and you'd be healed. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, that's the same thing. But it's not the bronze serpent that's going to be lifted up. Jesus, speaking of himself, says it will be the Son of Man, that he must be lifted on a cross, that he must become the substitute bronze serpent, that he had to take upon himself the sting of death, that he had to take upon himself the poison of sin on the cross. And he says he must be lifted up on the cross so that whoever believes in the Son of Man will have eternal life. Not temporary healing from a snake bite, eternal, forever healing. Healing that will last forever and it will be healing in the fullest sense of the word. So here's the plan, Nicodemus, verse 15. A belief in the heart. A belief just looking, just looking heals. Looking at Jesus heals from sin and creates a new life. Don't wrestle with it, Nicodemus. Believe it. Believe it. Darkness to light. Unbelief to truth. So there are two responses. Believe heaven or reject and hell. And then we come to the best known verse in the Bible. Chapter 3, verse 16. How many of you have red letter editions? Anybody? Several. Is verse 16 red or black? It's red. We don't know. Sorry. Back to R.C. Sproul again. <laughs> We're not sure if Jesus is still speaking by verse 16 or whether John is writing comments. Not that it makes any difference. It doesn't. We believe it's inspired by the Spirit of God, but it seems as though the conversation stops at that point. Nicodemus is not mentioned again, and from that point on, John is writing. But regardless, it's the Word of God. Now, what this is saying, this most likely best-known verse in the Bible, is the extent, the depth of God's love. That God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His Son in order to save everyone in the world. Is that what it's saying? Some universalists want to say that, that God gave His Son so everyone now is going to be saved. Some others say God loved the world enough to provide a way of salvation. He tossed in the life jacket, and now drowning, if you can get to it, you'll be saved. But it really doesn't say either of those exclusively. What John 3.16 says is God's love is so deep and so strong and so profound that he sent his only son. 
One commentator says, Our culture does not perceive the depths of the love of God as displayed by giving us Jesus. Our culture says, and we all hear this, if God only provides one way of a salvation, then he doesn't really love the world. <laughs> but it's clear that Jesus came into the world to save people. And so we are like those people with the fatal snake bite, sitting there on the sand in the wilderness and saying, wait, there's only one bronze serpent? That's the only way to be healed? I want more ways. And if that's the only way, I don't want anything to do with it. He is saying God has loved us so much that he's lifted him up like that serpent. And if you look, you will be healed. You will be saved. And verse 18 gives the alternative. Those who refuse to trust him are condemned already. It's probably safe to assume by this language that even in the wilderness there were people that refused to look at that bronze serpent after they'd been bitten for one reason or another. It's a universal offer. Uh, it's not exclusive to certain people, certain races, certain nationalities. And it's true, and history bears it out. In Africa, Augustine, one of the great conversions in history, here was this playboy in the Roman world in the 4th century. He had tried every philosophy. He was very bright. He's living with a live-in female companion. He is struggling with himself and he's sitting in a garden one day, and he hears someone say, a child, these Latin words, tole, lege, take it, read it. And he goes to his friend Olypius, and he takes the book of Romans, his friend does, and opens it up to Romans 13, 13. And from that one verse, Augustine was converted. John Bunyan, walking in a field outside of Bedford, England, bowed down with a sense of guilt and the weight of his own lostness. And one verse of Scripture came to mind. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And from that one verse, John Bunyan was converted. There's Charles Spurgeon, the January the 6th, 1850. He's in the city of Colchester, England, and the whole city is crippled by a snowstorm. And he's a teenage boy of about 15 years of age, 14 years of age, and he plans to go to church as he normally did that night. He makes his way to a primitive Methodist chapel because he can't get to the church he wanted to get to. And the preacher at that little bitty chapel can't make it because of the snow, so a, a layman, a, an unprepared layman, steps into the pulpit and reads one verse of Scripture, Isaiah 45:22. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And Spurgeon's testimony is at the beginning. He is mocking under his breath this preacher and how unprepared he was and how... Uh, uneducated he was, and God opens his heart, and he is converted that night through that one verse of Scripture. He said, I looked, I did what Isaiah said, I looked, and I was saved. C.S. Lewis in 1929, he's studying at Oxford where he was a professor, and all he came to the conclusion was, God, you are God. And he became, by his own words, the most reluctant convert in England. This past week, some of us watched the women snowboarding over in Sochi, and there's Kelly Clark, the oldest female Olympian in that event, four-time Olympian, three-time medalist, won the gold in 2002, won the bronze four years ago, won the bronze this year. Kelly Clark in 2005 realized that despite all the fame she had gained in that arena, 
said she was terribly empty inside. And so she was watching after an event where another snowboarder had not qualified and a person was talking to that other athlete and she overheard her say something to the effect of, it's all right, God still loves you. Kelly was so struck by that when she got back to the hotel that night, she found that woman at her hotel room and asked her to explain what she was talking about. And that night, nine years ago, she put her faith in Christ as her redeemer. So she is her fourth Olympics. God still does this. Uh, God still does this. And I offer you this morning the person of Jesus Christ. If you, in all your honesty, cannot look back and see a point in your life where God gave you a new heart, then you ought to clear that matter up right now. And God invites 30-year-olds and 12-year-olds and 8-year-olds and 88-year-olds and 100-year-olds. What a great moment to tell the Father that apart from the gift of Jesus Christ, that you believe he died for you, that he was raised for you, that he took your place, and now you are looking to him lifted up to be the way that you are made right with God. And I promise you God will do that. Let's pray together. Our loving and gracious, merciful Father, we thank you for these words from John's Gospel, these words from your Holy Spirit that eternal life is in Christ. We thank you that you've not set the bar so high that we have to be born of a certain lineage, that we have to have so much or do so much or be somebody that we're not in order to be saved. So we commit to you, Father, the truth we have heard bear fruit in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.